Welcome to Real Paranormal Activity, the network. Entertainment you'll enjoy. You are listening to an RPA production where people gather. Foss Corporation, LLC. Hello, my Mysterians. Welcome back to Terry's Mysterious Moments. We've got an interesting show for you, I hope. So let's get off into it. Back when things were all black and white, and the only color was provided by MGM Musicals, in 1947, a man was flying a private plane near... Mount Rainier, Washington, when he spotted some really weird stuff going on. He witnessed nine silver-colored discs flying in tandem at speeds that he estimated, and I don't know how he estimated, to be flying at a minimum of 1,200 miles per hour. This is a man flying a small Cessna-type plane and I have no idea how he estimated that speed. But this was the first post-World War II sighting in the United States that garnered worldwide news coverage and is credited with being the first of the modern era of UFO sightings, including numerous reported sightings over the next two or three weeks. Arnold's description of the objects also led to the press quickly coining the terms flying saucer and flying disc as popular descriptive terms of UFOs. After the 1947 UFO sighting, Arnold became famous practically overnight. Arnold's daughter would later recall the family receiving 10,000 letters and constant phone calls. Arnold was contacted by Raymond A. Palmer, the editor of the fringe science fiction magazine Amazing Stories, who asked Arnold to investigate the story of two harbormen in Tacoma who reportedly possessed fragments of a flying saucer. Palmer sent $200 to fund the investigation. The Maury Island incident refers to claims made by Fred Chrisman and Harold Dahl of falling debris and threats by men in black following sightings of unidentified flying objects in the sky over Maury Island in Puget Sound. The pair would later claim the events had occurred on June 21, 1947. On July 29th, Arnold interviewed one of the harbormen who claimed that one of the objects began spewing forth what seemed like thousands of newspapers from somewhere on the inside of its center. These newspapers, which turned out to be a white type of very lightweight metal, fluttered to earth. The harbormen claimed the craft emitted a substance resembling lava rocks that fell onto his boat, breaking a worker's arm and killing a dog. Arnold interviewed Fred Chrisman, an associate of the harborman, who reported having recovered debris from Maury Island 
and having witnessed an unusual craft. Chrisman showed white metal debris to Arnold, who interpreted it as mundane and inconsistent with the harborman's description. Arnold contacted the Air Force, and two officers soon arrived to investigate. The officers conducted interviews, collected the fragments, and took off in their plane to return to base. In the early hours of August 1st, the two officers died when the B-25 Mitchell they were piloting crashed outside of Kelso, Washington on their way back to California. Interesting turn of events, eh? Writing in 1956, Air Force officer Edward J. Ruppelt would conclude the whole Maury Island mystery was a hoax. The first, possibly the second best, the, and the dirtiest hoax in UFO history, Ruppelt observed. The government had thought seriously of prosecuting the men. At the last minute it was decided, after talking to him, that the hoax was a harmless joke that had mushroomed, and that the loss of two lives in a B-25 could not be directly blamed on the men. According to skeptical writer Joe Nickel, publisher Raymond A. Palmer, who is often credited with inventing the concept of the UFO, hired a credulous Kenneth Arnold to investigate what is now known as the Maury Island hoax. The story was later retold in Gray Barker's 1956 book, They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers, which helped to popularize the image of men in black in mainstream culture. You know the men in black. The guys wear hats, sunglasses, the same suit, drive nondescript cars. As Will Smith called them in the movie Men in Black, the POS. Well, these guys are sometimes described as looking somewhat oriental, but not really. And not speaking very much beyond what they have to. But they always seem to threaten the people they talked to. An account also appeared in the debunked Majestic 12 documents, which claimed that the metal fragments were part of a nuclear reactor and that they were subsequently turned over to the CIA. Craig Glenday also cited the Maury Island incident, along with the Arnold sightings, in his 1999 book, The UFO Investigator's Handbook, as a notable UFO incident surrounding Mount Rainier, which he described as a UFO laboratory. Arnold was later involved in interviewing other UFO witnesses or contactees. Notably, he investigated the claims of Samuel Eaton Thompson, one of the first contactees. In spring of 1948, Arnold and science fiction editor Ray Palmer collaborated on an article titled, I Did See the Flying Discs, based on Arnold's sighting. In 1950, Arnold self-published a 16-page booklet titled, The Flying Saucer As I Saw It. In 1948, he authored, Are Space Visitors Here? and Phantom Lights in Nevada. On April 7th of 1950, broadcaster Edward R. Murrow interviewed Arnold, who stated that since June of 1947, 
he had had three additional sightings of nine spacecraft. In January of 1951, Cosmopolitan magazine published an article titled The Disgraceful Flying Saucer Hoax, which accused Arnold of igniting a chain reaction of mass hypnotism and fraud that has taken on the guise of a prolonged Martian invasion broadcast by that bizarre hambone Orson Welles. Don't you love the way they talked about each other back then? In 1952, Arnold and Palmer, <laughs> Arnold Palmer, Arnold and Palmer authored The Coming of the Saucers. Reportedly, Arnold came to believe that he had seven additional sightings, one of which involved a transparent saucer he likened to a jellyfish. In 1984, Kenneth Arnold, age 68, died from colon cancer at Overlake Hospital in Bellevue, Washington. But that didn't end the UFO hullabaloo. Majestic Mount Rainier in Washington's Cascade Mountains seems to attract and even help produce flying saucers. During a few days in October of 2013, Joe Nickel was able to twice fly over and even walk upon the rarefied slopes at over 5,500 feet of the still active volcano. Yes, Mount Rainier is an active volcano, just like Mount St. Helens was. Let's put our heads together to look at Mount Rainier's continuing role in ufology. As students of saucerology know, private pilot Kenneth Arnold famously saw nine flying saucers in an echelon pattern over the Cascade Mountains in the vicinity of Mount Rainier on June 24th of 1947. Arnold's UFOs have been variously interpreted. Airplanes flying in formation, a flock of American white pelicans, balloons, even droplets of water on his airplane's windshield. However, it has been hypothesized that it is more likely the several culprits were optical phenomena called mountaintop mirages. This phenomenon, as shown in photographs, gives the appearance of hovering saucer-shaped craft. Due to the conditions that produce a mirage, it is the mountaintops themselves that appear in artificial suspension above the landscape. Given the clear skies and smooth air in which Arnold saw the flying saucers, together with the angle of the sun, 50.4 degrees above the horizon, all that was needed was a temperature inversion to complete the formula. Normally, air becomes colder with the increase in altitude. Sometimes, however, the situation gets reversed. For example, the ground cooling rapidly at night can cool the air directly over it, and since the layer above that is naturally warmer, the result is a temperature inversion. This causes light rays that pass through the air to bend, with images thus becoming distorted and, in the case of mountaintop mirages, also appearing displaced. Arnold's own statements about his sighting helped to bolster the case for just such mirages being responsible. 
He said the objects appeared to reflect sunlight and that they even seemed like reflections, as from his plane window, which he checked and ruled out. Indeed, the flashing they made in the sun reminded me of the reflection of a great mirror, he said, and they looked like they were rocking. The entire effect would have been enhanced by the position of the sun, its light reflecting off the upper surface of the mirages. He stated that, in addition, the saucer-like objects were flying very close to the mountaintops, seemingly swerved in and out of the high mountain peaks, and, he came to conclude, were a formation in the neighborhood of five miles long. A large squadron indeed. He saw them, he calculated, from two definite points, Mount Adams and Mount Rainier, as being 100 miles away, and he got as close to them as 23 miles. To me, it seems like that kind of distance, I, I've never flown that type of aircraft before, but it seems to me that you see something 100 miles away, you're barely going to see it or else you've got binocular eyes. Anyway, Mount Rainier was not directly part of the Mirage, which was caused by other mountains in the Washington Cascade Range, but Arnold did describe the saucers as flying approximately south from Mount Baker in the direction of Mount Rainier. Therefore, the latter may be characterized as metaphorically a magnet for UFOs. On the anniversary of Kenneth Arnold's sighting, states one UFO writer, UFOlogists make the trek to Rainier to commemorate the birth of saucerology. He might have replaced trek with pilgrimage, since he seems to elevate the mountain to the status of an Olympus or a Sinai. He lists Rainier as one of several UFO hotspots, that is, areas of concentrated UFO activity that can be treated by ufologists as UFO laboratories. Yet, apart from the Arnold sighting, he lists for the Rainier area only the infamous Maury Island incident in which a dog was killed and a boy injured by debris discharged by one of six UFOs. Arnold was involved in that 1947 case as well but as a supposed investigator. He was out of his depth, and it fell to Air Force investigators to expose the case as a hoax, confirmed by confessions of the perpetrators. Now, Mount Rainier actually plays a more direct role in saucerology, helping indeed to generate what Hendry calls saucer-like apparitions, a striking phenomena indeed. Mountains like Rainier actually help to form clouds into the shapes of flying saucers. These are called lenticular or lens-shaped clouds. These smooth, symmetrical formations may take the simple form of a double convex lens, and they may be much more elaborate, piled into a stack of two or more. Such clouds may appear singly or in groups resembling a squadron of flying saucers. These cloud saucers are seen in and around mountainous areas. They are formed 
When stable, moist air flows over hills or mountains, causing large standing waves to form on the prominences downwind side. Should the temperature at the crest of a wave drop to the dew point, the temperature at which vapor condenses, a lenticular cloud may be formed. Rarely, lenticular clouds may form where no mountain exists when a front causes shear winds. Lenticular clouds typically remain stationary and have long durations. A beautiful array of layered clouds was photographed, for instance, over Sao Paulo, Brazil, with the mountain range in the distance. More relative to the present discussion, another source points out that on some days, Seattle, Washington is treated to an unusual sky show when lenticular clouds form near Mount Rainier, which looms less than 100 kilometers to the southeast. Lenticular clouds can actually be reported as UFOs. Investigator Alan Hendry cites a case involving confusion over these saucer lookalikes, in which five to six lenticular clouds hung stationary over Peavine Mountain for half an hour in Reno, Nevada, then descended into a conventional cloud layer. Moreover, like airplanes, weather balloons, planets, shooting stars, and other aerial phenomena, these cloud formations are subject to atmospheric distortion caused, for example, by intervening fog, ice crystals, whirlpools of air, and the like. The resulting distorted image may appear especially saucer-like. It is possible that among the UFO cases that remain unsolved, a few could involve lenticular clouds possibly viewed under unusual conditions. Someone spotted a lenticular cloud hovering right over the top of Mount Rainier. They were riding in a shuttle to the Seattle airport with physicist and CFI board member Leonard Tremiel the day after the CFI summit, a conference in Tacoma, October 24th through the 27th of 2013. Some fellow passengers at first thought it was just the mountain's snowcap, but Leonard confirmed that it was indeed a lenticular cloud. Mount Rainier was then obscured by trees and buildings for the next few minutes, and when it next came into view, the cloud was gone. Or as Leonard happily quipped, it flew away. Let's turn now to a mysterious UFO sighting at Mount Rainier that occurred half a century before Kenneth Arnold's saucers heralded the wave of modern UFOs. It was reported by a couple who described a strange light in the night sky near the summit of the famous mountain. Their account is related in books like Weird Washington, but as one might imagine, there is more to the story. The original account appeared in the Tacoma Daily Ledger on November 27th of 1896, on page four, under the heading, What Was It? Wonderful Apparition Seen Over Tacoma. It informs us that on the previous Tuesday, on November 24th, at about 12 o'clock at night, druggist George St. John and his wife were lying in bed and saw from their Tacoma Avenue window a strange light east of Mount Tacoma, 
which is now Mount Rainier. Mr. St. John, the newspaper reports, describes it as having the appearance of a brilliant electric light and looked to be nearly the size of an arc electric light. Arc lights are very, very large things. It flashed often and each time sent forth various colored rays of light, shooting out from the center in every direction, like spokes from a hub of a wheel. The couple watched the light as it moved slowly from one window to the other. The account continued. It seemed to have a wavering motion and swayed back and forth in its course through the heavens like a vessel at sea in a storm. It is important to note that this report came amidst the great wave of airship fever that occurred in the United States between November 17th of 1896 and the middle of May of 1897, fueled by science fiction interest in the possibility of heavier-than-air flight. The rash of sightings began when something resembling an electric arc lamp passed over Sacramento, California in the early evening of November 17th of 1896. Significantly, this was during the annual Leonid meteor shower. Its peak in 1896 was on November 14th, suggesting it was a large bright meteor known as a fireball. Newspapers hyped the story, prompting people to look to the skies and soon Almost anything seen in the heavens was thought to be another airship sighting. What caused the Rainier light display? We may consider a number of possibilities here, from the remote to the plausible. We are doubtful of it having been a copycat hoax because the witnesses were aware of the Sacramento event but were considered reputable. For a variety of reasons, we doubt the possibility of a shared hypnagogic or waking dream experience, although such hallucinations between wakefulness and sleep often involve bright lights and visions. We may consider ball lightning or other unusual forms of lightning and electrical discharges such as St. Elmo's fire, but they are rare and seem inconsistent with the apparent weather conditions in Tacoma at the time. A scintillating star or twinkling could have produced some of the effects because a planet can scintillate too, but it would have taken a very long time to have moved from one window to another. Because the St. John's experience occurred during the Alpha Monoceratids meteor shower, which peaked on November 21st, it's considered that the flashes the couple reported were possibly meteors. The arc light effect a very large meteor called a fireball, and the radiating colors possibly caused by a boli, a bright shooting meteor or fireball, especially one which explodes when it's near the end of its path in the atmosphere. However, this scenario too seemed an ill fit with portions of the witness's description. Again, what was the airship? Mount Adams, one of the other suspect hilltops, in our story is near Mount Rainier, but not too close to it. It stands 37 miles east of Mount St. Helens, which is only half the mountain it used to be, and about 50 miles south of Mount Rainier. 
When Kenneth Arnold saw his squadron of shiny discs back in 1947, he was flying by Mount Rainier and reported that his aerial escorts were also flying by Mount Rainier, although at a somewhat faster pace than his little plane could muster. He said the discs were flying toward Mount Adams. The activity involving UFOs and UFO-related things have remained a large part of the Mount Adams and Mount Rainier histories ever since Arnold's sightings. One particular area of reporting regarding Mount Adams is the occurrence of mystery lights around the mountain. Many of the lights are seen moving up and down the side of the mountain and the automatic blame is that the lights are caused by UFOs. But not everyone is willing to accept and or blame UFOs as the cause of these lights. Daryl Lloyd, a well-known Hood River photographer, doesn't think extraterrestrials are to blame for the lights. Way to go, Daryl. Here's what Daryl Lloyd says about the strange lights at Mount Adams. The lights are climbers' headlights. Nearly all climbers on Mount Adams start their climbs at night. Their LED lights are quite bright and appear to flash on and off because climbers turn their heads toward the valley. Occasionally, snowmobilers will travel at night on the mountain illegally, so their lights would also appear very bright and flash on and off. One person has formulated the theory that there is a large hangar-type door in the side of Mount Adams. But in another investigative television program, investigators used a helicopter to get a better view of the suspected location of the door. While ascending to the height of the suspect location, the helicopter encountered much turbulence which threw quite a scare into the investigators, but things worked out for the good and they were able to get good quality photographs of the location. The person who offered the idea of the hangar door had taken pics from, of the area from a very long distance away, and it did indeed look like a dark square on the side of the mountain. What with all the UFO stories, is it too strange to think there might be something to it? I don't think so. But when the man was shown the newer photographs, he realized that the pics he had taken were indeed provocative and could lead one to believe in the hangar door, but that due to the shadows on the rock, it only looked like a door. But the new photos clearly showed no door in the rock, because in these photos, the light from the sun quite beautifully lit up the face of the rock. No shadows, no door. This is not the only story I've told about a suspected UFO hangar and a mountainside. In Terry's Mysterious Moments, Season 6, Episode 19, I told some stories, including one about Dulce Base in New Mexico, I believe it is, where the local big rock emplacement there has a UFO hangar door and quite a few stories of scientific experimentation and even battles between humans and extraterrestrials within the mountain. This is and are not the only mountains rumored to be bases for alien visitors. Mount Shasta in California is reported to be well visited by aliens, alien craft, and other odd situations. So the question or questions begs to be asked, are there aliens on Earth? 
And if so, why are they here? And further, what are they doing? What do you think about this subject? Do aliens reside on Earth? Do they have an evil agenda for us human-type people? Is there a way for us to repel them if they are evil? Should we just put loudspeakers outside our house and play Slim Whitman singing <laughs> the Indian love call? Hey, it worked on Mars Attacks. Well, that's this week's show. Hey, thanks for being here for the ride. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned something new. And I hope you'll be with us again. Have a great week.